This is Live from Ukraine, a conversation with Ukrainian voices taped live on Twitter Spaces. To join future audiences, follow me at Benjamin Wittes. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Live from Ukraine, Episode 2, a highly eccentric podcast recorded over my morning coffee with Ukrainian voices on Twitter Spaces. Our guest this morning is Dr. Lech, uh, and uh, though I call this podcast live from Ukraine, I think he's joining us live from Queens, New York. Is that right, Walter? Absolutely, live from uh, Jackson Heights, Queens, um, if you want to be precise, pardon. Excellent. And I hear a cat in the background. It's one of the the two, the one that's, uh, she's more needy. Excellent. Um, so, uh, Walter, uh, I'm going to have you describe this in detail, but for people who don't know who Walter is, uh, Walter has been running uh, one of the most uh, ambitious uh, uh, projects in the history of Twitter, I think, since the beginning of the Ukraine war. He has had a continuous Twitter spaces running 24-7, uh, with military and issue area experts from all over the world uh, commenting continuously on the situation in Ukraine. Um, so uh, it is called the Walter Report, and uh, he's taking a break from it right now to join us here. So welcome. Thank you. Yes, that was uh, pretty much spot on. Uh, this was a project that started somewhat inadvertently. Um, well, my background is completely unrelated to what I'm currently doing. Um, I'm a licensed physician at OBGYN in Ukraine. Um, we moved to, to States, I reckon it was already two years, two plus years ago. And uh, basically, yeah, I was I was a physician. I was quite in the middle of being basically transferring my credentials. It's quite an arduous process um, to the U.S. And uh, the war started just prior to that. I was following the events above. Uh, actually, it's uh, we are incorrect here because the war has been on for eight years. Russia. Yes, the, the full blown war. The the invade the full invasion. Yeah, the invasion from new directions, because actually it was even a full-blown war in 2014, just limited to the eastern Ukrainian oblasts or regions. Uh, at that point, it was just to Donetsk and Luhansk. And the war still was on. It was fueled by Russia for eight years, even though it faded into backgrounds uh, for many people. Even in Ukraine, it somewhat faded into the background. Uh, but um, all the indications were pointing to to something ominous that was about to happen and if you recall russia has been preparing the invasion for many years it became obvious during the spring spring of last year when they started this massive troop buildup near its borders in 2021 it continued during the year somewhat under the radar again russia escalated the war for eight years and continued to escalate um, the attacks and the tensions on the front lines in the east, because during the last six years, the war, pardon, the war was a uh, was along a stable front line. It was a World War One type of war uh, with very very modern 
and advanced elements like drone warfare, anti-sniper warfare, uh, electronic warfare, but it, the front line was stable. But again, Russia was preparing and setting the stage specifically to, to invade Ukraine anew. And uh, all the basically indicators ring and uh, pointing to a couple of months before the invasion started. That's why actually I started to be more active on Twitter because uh, some, of my, some of my friends from medical schools, uh, they are literally on the front line. One of them was in Bahmut Hospital. He's a military surgeon. He took a different path than I did. I went into obstetrics and that part of surgery, he became a military surgeon and uh, provided, provided help to civilians and military personnel for, for a number of years in the east of Ukraine, because as I said, the war raged on. And uh, yeah, it all happened on the 24th. Uh, Russia invaded from new directions, not just the existing one in the east of Ukraine, from Russian-occupied Donetsk and Luhansk, but also from the north, from the south, from Russian-occupied Crimea, and uh, from the east near Belgorod. And uh, the war started. The war started and the, the project started that we kind of inadvertently continued and it became a 24-7 coverage the events happening in Ukraine, um, coverage of the progression of the war, of the Russian invasion and its successful Ukrainian counterattacks. And we tried to elevate voices from the ground, getting Ukrainian voices on the space. We had a number of people, active military personnel from the 93rd Brigade, like Roman Ratushny, former warriors and veterans from the Bas Battalion who fought it since 2014 then became veterans and got uh, re-enlisted recently. We had people who fought in 2014, then uh, basically also immigrated, but continued to provide help to their brethren and comrades or former comrades by uh, basically volunteering and procuring equipment and sending them the equipment to Ukraine. We had journalists from Ukraine reporting about war crimes that Russians perpetrated near Ostomil, Bucha, and Irpin, like Olga Hudecka. So again, it became a 24-7 coverage and marathon, and uh, it still is such. And a number of people joined us and continue to help us to maintain the project and uh, elevate Ukrainian voices and get um, experts and their expertise to be conveyed to, to our audience. And also Maria Aid, um, that connected and even partly was born out of this um, and uh, basically an NGO project that provides help and extends a helping hand to Ukrainians on the ground by providing medical supplies, something that I'm personally familiar with, to say the least, and also non-lethal equipment. So Maria Aid also stepped in and uh, helped us and we continue to help them and provide the coverage and try to provide some help to people on the ground in Ukraine. So that's the backstory, probably a bit long-winded, but... No, it's excellent. It's excellent background. So I, I want to talk uh, a minute before we, we go back to the project. I want to talk a little bit about you. How do you go from being uh, a, a, a nutrition uh, in Ukraine to being a, uh, a sort of 24-7 live podcaster on the war in Queens? It's a, it's a big professional jump. Just... Uh, tell us a little bit about your your personal journey. So it's a journey that I, let's put it this way, uh, I took it inadvertently. 
And was uh, our advertent? Um, because again, I was caught in the middle of basically preparing to to transfer my credentials and pass the exams, and the war started. And for me personally, it's just even though I, for the detriment of my personal career progression and personal um, expertise, let's put it this way, I put it on hold somewhat and uh, contribute my time and effort, at least in, in, a, in a way to help Ukrainians on the ground, uh, to help those people who, who, who do way more than I currently do, because they're protecting their land, their homes, their families, and they're fighting against literally being exterminated and being genocided. This is what is happening in Ukraine. I personally believe that every Ukrainian or anyone literally who wants to help has to do something about it. And this is my way to to do something about it and uh, help at least somehow. And in this case, it's uh, providing public attention, countering Russian disinformation, elevating voices from Ukraine and uh, basically continuing to do so in 24 where in Ukraine are you from, and how did you end up in Queens? I'm from Lviv, born and raised. Uh, it's the western Ukraine, biggest city in the western Ukraine. Um, and uh, I traveled a couple of times to the U.S. Never thought of basically ending up here for good. I was just a, a tourist in 2008 and 12, and then started my work in uh, in a hospital, it's a tertiary clinic, perinatal center in Lviv, large one. And uh, basically, two years ago, we got the chance to uh, to to move to the U.S. via diversity visa. So we actually took a leap of faith, ended up here, and uh, here we here we basically are somewhat in the middle between two worlds of sorts and uh, helping Ukrainians as much as we can, I reckon, just from here, from Queens. Yeah, so um, for, I, I'm, I'm asking all of uh, my guests this, uh, because there's a lot of confusion in the West about language in Ukraine. So your native language is Ukrainian, uh, probably, if you're from Lviv, is that right? That's correct. My uh, my parents, all my family, they speak Ukrainian. Uh, actually, it's uh, the same related to the rest of Ukraine. The main and most uh, most widely used language in Ukraine is Ukrainian. Uh, Russian is close as the second one, and there are a number of others. And language was never an issue for Ukrainians. Unlike what Russian propaganda and Russian disinformation try to frame it, because the current narrative and actually a very long-lasting, ongoing narrative that Russia tries to to impose is uh, quite preposterous. There is some kind of suppression uh, of Russian language in Ukraine, which is just absolutely ridiculous. Actually, it's quite the opposite because Ukrainian language was somewhat limited, uh, but there was no suppression of language overall or Russian language specifically. Whoever wants to speak what language they uh, deem necessary to speak has all the basically privileges or opportunities to do so. 
But again, it's just something to be aware of because it's a long-lasting Russian um, way to describe things and impose their propaganda to describe some issue, made-up issue regarding Russian language in Ukraine, which is absolutely detached from reality. And there's also a part of that same line is the idea that uh, Russian language speakers, mostly in the East, are kind of represented by Russia or by Russian allied parties. Uh, That is also, in my experience, simply untrue. The Russian language speaking Ukrainians of my acquaintance are very Ukrainian. Uh, do you have a, a a sense of of Russian speaking Ukrainians as a sort of less Ukrainian than Ukrainian speaking Ukrainians? Not at all. It's just uh, it, it sounds ridiculous. As it is ridiculous, and uh, there are Russian speaking Ukrainians, Ukrainian speaking Ukrainians, Ukrainians who speak both languages, and it's not an issue. The issue is. A real issue is that, again, Russian disinformation tries to frame, in a weird way, Russian-speaking Ukrainians as ethnically Russian or Russians. And for whatever reason, according to Russian propaganda, Russian, Russian-speaking Ukrainians should uh, covet a sort of a, um, unity with Russia, which is ridiculous, preposterous, detached from reality. But it's a way for Russia to justify its... Uh, imperious ambitions, and in this case, it's uh, also a way to justify the ongoing war, or at least one of the narratives that they use. So tell us about uh, the development of the Walter Report. You, uh, you're you studying for your, your boards, uh, your medical boards. Uh, the new phase of the war starts how do you get the idea of going live on Twitter spaces, just staying there for, you know, on a 24-7 basis? So, yeah, right now I'm not studying that much into a distant drawer. Um, unfortunately, that's the case uh, for now. Uh, how did we start streaming 24-7? Well, um, we were occasionally in the spaces with some, you know, one, two-hour spaces prior to the invasion, I believe a month starting from December, because it was brewing. The Basically, the invasion was coming, and it was pointing to that, all the indicators. But on the 23rd, I reckon, of February, uh, it was basically we were online. And in between 23rd and 24th, it started. And we were seeing, basically covering the the Russian attack on the checkpoint in between Russian occupied Crimea and Ukraine's mainland. The, the basically there was a CCTV uh, camera footage of a Ukrainian uh, border guard attacked by Russian special forces. Then there were rocket strikes following upon different Ukrainian cities, including in Western Ukraine, and uh, also recalled two Turkish A400 large transporter planes that we tracked that landed in Borispil and then never off because Borispil was covered with Russian cruise missile attack. And ever since, it's just, we got basically kind of encompassed 
and engulfed by the process. We continued. The war raged on. The, the, the events were just building up. The events followed and we got somewhat even connected, I guess, to that, to, to the coverage just because people were dying and uh, we tried to provide the coverage and try to get the voices from Ukraine, um, conveying their uh, first-hand experiences. And uh, that's why the project continued and still continues. But it's not just voices from Ukraine. I mean, it's a remarkable array of world's leading military analysts who kind of pop in and out and who uh, engage with the Ukrainian voices. There seems to be a whole lot of Canadian former military, a lot of uh, 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 just sort of analysts of, of a very high caliber. Where did you find these people or did they find you? Uh, it was like a two-way process since we were the main Twitter space and with the coverage providing Ukraine, some of these people just uh, flocked in and occasionally we just noticed that, uh, let's say, Colonel just John Spencer was listening and we invited him to the hill and uh, we were more than glad to hear his insights, how he sees, because he's an expert in urban warfare. And the urban warfare is something that was happening in Mariupol for 82 days and uh, was becoming um, part of the warfare in the cities in the east, like Pulnovaha, Izum, Kharkiv, and uh, suburbs of Kyiv. And many other like uh, Canadian military personnel. And uh, so, yeah, the contribution of these people uh, matter greatly. And it's part of the project. Um, a great part of the project because they share their professional experience and their professional assessment of what is happening and convey that knowledge to the audience, which matters greatly. And, and you uh, also have, you now have a group of co-hosts. You're not a, a solo actor at this point. Who do you run it with? Right. Uh, absolutely correct. It's not just me. It's a team effort. Uh, we have a group of, uh, I reckon, 20 people right now uh, it's Ukrainians from Ukraine. Uh, some Ukrainians who are currently are not in Ukraine. Canadian uh, military personnel who provided a helping hands in their experience. Uh, people from different parts of the world, from Poland, journalists from Poland, um, a, a German contributor who is currently in Estonia. Uh, a wide array of people who wanted to help Ukraine and to, to contribute to the project and to, to help to sustain the project. And uh, because of them, it's just not me, because physically it's impossible to maintain it for 24-7. Uh, the longest that I managed to do so was like 40 hours or a bit less, but uh, because of the co-hosts and the help, it's manageable. Wait, did you just say you managed to do 40 hours straight? Like 38. Whoa. I don't think I've ever been awake for 38 hours straight. Um, wow. Okay. Um, so we are going to go to audience questions in a moment. Um, but uh, so this is a good time to uh, flag uh, if you want to speak. Um, uh, one last question for me. What, what sort of audience are you reaching? I, I notice most of the time when I look at it, there's five, six, seven hundred people on it at a time. Are they 
the same, usually is it a core audience that's the same people all the time or, or do you have a sense of what the reach of the Walter report is at this, at this point? Well, it differs because obviously, first of all, the audience fluctuates uh, because we are living in a, in a world where media attention span is two weeks, right? So we had uh, five, six, up to actually at certain points, we had 10,000 listeners uh, consecutively at the same time, 10,000 live listeners. And then it faded away because apparently people obviously move on with their lives. And right now, we, I believe we have a core audience of five, seven hundred people with a burst of um, reaching up to 1,000, 2,000. If we, if we have a guest like McRyan, General McRyan, or we're about to have you know, Ben Hodges and Mark Hurtling on Wednesday who provide their sites, or John Spencer, when he joins, obviously, people tend to tune in. But uh, the baseline, yes, like five, seven hundred core audience. And as I said, it still very much um, relies upon what is happening. If there is a, some interesting developing uh, and just people naturally tune in. For example, when Nerhodar in the south of Ukraine, the nuclear power plant was stormed by Russians. Um, the audience immediately just showed attention because they hear on the news, uh, the world nuclear, world nuclear, nuclear power plant, and it triggers attention. And it just yeah, <laughs> the audience is, was speaking like more than ten thousand at that point. It was kind of ridiculous because the work continued and never really changed. But people tend to fade away, then get back in, and just ups and downs. We have a question from Jerome. Jerome, the floor is yours. Uh, hi, quickly, I just want to say that. Uh, I just really, I'm a long time listener. I really appreciate it because of the fact that it puts itself out there every day to test the market. It's open and it just stands up to the test of constant um, scrutiny and it's just out there and stands alone. It's a true test. Uh, one of the mentor, one of the listeners the other day, met, I think it was Cajun. Uh, he's a long time listener. He always speaks a lot. Just saying about the marketplace, how business owners have to every day open their doors and test their product. If they last, it must work. So that's the thing. And on the other, another thing, I, I love the Grateful Dead. And I believe they pushed the technology because of who they were. And I firmly believe this Walter Report is being technology ahead. I'm, I'm thinking Twitter's actually using it to test its uh, capacities, limitations, technological aspects. And I just think it's just a great space technologically. I think it's pushing envelopes. I think it pushes envelopes of thought. It puts the thoughts out there. And uh, bad thoughts get exposed quickly. And, um, and in a manner, get put to the side. And it's also singular in focus and uh, distractions are set aside. So it does go down rabbit holes, but uh, it, it, it's brought back oftentimes by Walter, just grabbing the mic and staring it back. And, uh, and it's allowed free flow, but yet singular, um, singular focus. And uh, it's very informative. Thank you. This is, uh, I, I, I second all of that. I think the, uh, you know, for those of you who have not listened to it, it is a remarkable resource. And my recommendation is uh, to uh, just spot check in, you know, once a day at different times a day uh, for, you know, 30, 45 minutes at a time. It's just a great way to hear a diversity of voices 
some analysts, some uh, uh, specialists, some people in the field. Uh, it's it really is a unique resource. Just Alona, uh, to, to oh, start sorry, here before we move on to Alona, we also try to not just provide the coverage, but also try to provide the helping hand to Ukrainians since the day one of this renewed Russian invasion. Initially, we got uh, basically people rallied up around the biggest Ukrainian volunteer fund that is, was active since 2014 called Come Back Alive or Back in Alive and helped them significantly, substantially, just diverted all potential donations to them because they literally saved lives in Ukraine and continue to do so. And then we were approached and actually contributed ourselves to a new NGO that was born uh, and was basically based, it's quite a unique thing, upon the effort of Canadian and American military personnel who were training Ukrainians as a part of Operation Unifier NATO mission in Ukraine. And uh, as the mission ended in 2021, they basically continued to provide help as a medical aid and non-lethal equipment. And uh, they created an organization called Maria Aid. Uh, and uh, this is how we support them. And also they provided some support to us. And uh, what's more important, our talk basically and our coverage, it kind of uh, transforms and conveys itself into something tangible uh, for people on the ground who are suffering. It might be medical supplies, individual first aid kits, or just everything, literally everything helps. And uh, organizations like Come Back Alive and specifically Maria Aid, in our current case, they, they make a difference and we try to contribute to them as well via our project. And is there a way for uh, listeners to contribute to Maria Aid or Come Back Alive? Yeah, basically, uh, if you follow Walter Reports, Walter underscore report account, there is a link in there uh, attached to the account. It's maria8.org, M-R-I-Y-A-8.org. It directs you to the website. You can look it up, what these people do, what help they provide. Mostly it's medical supplies, individual first aid kit, kits for defenders and also for civilians and uh, personal protection equipment, non-lethal equipment like scopes, everything that is needed to protect Ukraine and save, save Ukrainian life. So basically, if you if you follow actually even my profile or Walter Report profile, it just directs you there. You can find the link and basically spread the words. It also matters. It's just not about you know contribution or monetary contribution. It's just about spreading the word because it matters greatly. Conveying the message about what is happening in Ukraine because of genocide literally happening in the 21st century perpetrated by Russian invaders in Ukraine and the war never stopped even though it faded into the background somewhat but it's it's an immense huge battlefield in Europe happening right now and it affects not just Ukrainians it affects everyone in the world and here in the US as well and uh, it, there is a way to help these people and Maria is a good option to do so Alona, the floor is yours. Hey, guys. How's hey, it? welcome. Hello. Hello. Hey, everyone. We're good. <laughs> Your question? It's good to know. Um, 
I'm having trouble hearing. My Aloma. question. I don't have um, a likewise. Question. I just have a a comment about. Can you hear me now? Uh, you're breaking up a little bit. So uh, why don't you uh, try once more and uh, I guess keep it brief uh, and we'll try to get you in. Is, is, is it better at the moment or not? It's okay. Go yeah. ahead. Um, yeah, I just wanted to ask what is happening with Jeremy Corbyn and whether anyone has like thoughts on why the things that he's, he says about Ukraine and just completely failing to, um, you know, to, to condemn Russia at all. Um, how how did it become like acceptable in our in our society? I live in in, in London, I'm based in the UK, and I just don't understand how someone of um, someone high profile like that can get away with making statements that he's been making. I guess that's my question. It's an excellent question. Uh, I have some thoughts on it, but uh, Walter, uh, uh, why don't you give yours? Well, you, you put me in, uh, under the spotlight here. Uh, yeah, there are politicians everywhere who, in one or another way, uh, help Russia and Russian policies. And it's an issue all over Europe and also an issue in the U.S. and Canada, everywhere where democracy is. Because Russia tries to disrupt, Russia tries to basically subvert, and Russia tries to utilize the horseshoe effect. The only issue for Russia is the cohesion of democratic society, and this is number one target uh, for Russian influence everywhere. To subvert it, to potentiate the, uh, the sides of the spectrum that on the far right and far left, and uh, hey. make them benefit Russia and Russian people. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, uh, I'm so, I'm so. Sorry about that, Walter. We had no a. Worries. We have it occasionally on every a live stream. So yep. It's, uh, it's one but, of the features. <laughs> I will just, I will just add to this that uh, there is a strain of thought on the tradition, you know, the the, the right that is sympathetic to Russia, that has gotten a lot of attention recently, particularly in the United States and France because of Marine Le Pen, because of Donald Trump, because of Tucker Carlson, right? And so that's one that's uh, pretty familiar to people. And uh, But the, the other strain of thought that is traditionally sympathetic, which goes back to Russia, which goes back throughout the period of the Soviet Union, is the far left. Um, and Jeremy Corbyn is a uh, is an example of that, uh, and that strain of thought does persist to this day. Uh, it's you know most prominent in the United States with you know uh, uh, intellectual figures like like uh, Glenn Greenwald or uh, political figures like Tulsi Gabbard. Uh, but these are you know the the classic. Uh, people that Lenin used to describe as useful idiots, and it's a it's a it's a very old strain of thought, um, and um, and you know it, I don't think it should surprise anybody that there are people who still uh, represent it and still uh, uh, believe it. Now it should uh, entirely discredit those people as. Uh, as leaders, but I I don't think it's 
surprising that uh, uh, that like that these people exist. And one of the things that is characteristic of them uh, is that they are generally sympathetic to anybody on the other side of uh, Western, particularly U.S. power. And so here you have Putin uh, challenging through a, a genocidal invasion of Ukraine, uh, challenging Western hegemony. And that is uh, very, very attractive to a certain strain of traditional leftist. I, you know, I, I, I have zero sympathy with this point of view, but I, but I do, I do observe that it exists. It's a consistent stream of thought since, you know, since 1917. And, uh, and, one of the characteristics of this strain of thought is that it blinds, it willfully blinds itself to the murderous character of a lot of Russian or Soviet activity uh, up to and including genocidal activity in Ukraine. And of course, that was the story in the early 1930s. And uh, it's, uh, you know, for that strain of left, it is still the story today. Um, yeah, not, not, let's not forget that during Soviet times, and uh, well, it still is the case, but during Soviet times, uh, the regime was grooming certain individuals and basically inviting only those who uh, Russians were absolutely sure about, uh, about their allegiance and at least about their sympathy towards, towards Russia and Soviet Union. And essentially, they were grooming such individuals for many years. Some of them are basically retained themselves in the, in the West, in institutions, in the, in the educational institute, institutions, and uh, they present a part of the problem because, as it was rightfully said, they are so-called useful, useful idiots and they're just being masterfully manipulated. Or even, in some cases, they don't even have to be manipulated because they got ingrained into the... Uh, um, the uh, this propaganda uh, I need to reformulate the question, right? So it doesn't surprise me that they exist, and it doesn't like I I have a you know a general understanding of how Russia is manipulating both both right and left um, to sort of divide and, and conquer, right? But what hooks me is the like if your friend said to you that the Holocaust didn't happen. Would you you probably like no reasonable person would speak to them after right? Uh, whereas with this, everybody is watching in real time what's happening in Ukraine, and there is like there should be public condemnation for people like like they should not be um, they should pretty much be marginalized in the society if they say this. Um, they shouldn't you know uh, they shouldn't um, feel comfortable saying this in the public space. So. Corbyn, together with a couple other, um, well, useful idiots, as you said, they published a statement that says um, that there has to be a comprehensive peace treaty guaranteed by the European Union, the United States, and and Russia. And I was, I read that, I was like, is, is he on crack? Like, what is, uh, I'm sorry, but like, what security can Russia guarantee to Ukraine? Especially completely not. Especially after already having done so in the Budapest Memorandum and the Minsk Agreement, um, look, your point is very well taken. Um, uh, I cannot speak to. I I agree with you that there are certain things that you say about international relations that uh, mark you as. Uh, uh, I don't want to engage in ad hominem, but a crack smoker, um, and um, and. 
you know, this is not the first time Corbyn has crossed that line. But I, I, I do think the question of why this does not discredit him in, uh, in the eyes of uh, UK public opinion is really a question for, uh, uh, for a specialist on UK on public opinion research and, and sort of UK politics. And I honestly don't feel qualified to, to answer that. I don't know if Walter does. Um, I wouldn't specifically delve into, you know, in individuals or particular individuals overall, because the issue is persistent in different countries. It's not just UK. It's the horseshoe effect, as I said, that Russians masterfully play. They potentiate uh, pro-Russian sentiments in one way or another on the extremes of the political spectrums. Often it is far right. Very often it is also far left. For example, in France, it's far right. In Hungary, it's far right. Um, in US, it's on both sides of the spectrum, as we currently see. And uh, they just their uh, their version reality and what they need to basically convey and push via this horseshoe effect. And that different politicians, different uh, ways of being indoctrinated, but the end game is still the same, just to push Russian propaganda, Russian narrative, and to target the cohesion of Western societies, the democratic societies. Thomas, the floor is yours. Hello there. Good evening from Tokyo. I like this topic uh, of the useful idiots. And uh, as somebody who you know, studied the Soviet Union and uh, visited there in the mid-1980s and saw the deployment of their useful idiots in the U.S. saying that worldwide is kind of interesting phenomenon. I might add uh, regarding Japan that we have been spared pretty much uh, any real serious deployment of Russian influence on the media here during this whole invasion. Uh, it's, it's almost unanimously across the board from left media to center to right uh, you know, very opposed to, to Russia. Their embassy has really had a limited template to be able to do that. They have done that in the past 20 or 30 years ago, a little more successfully, but they haven't been, they have not been very, they haven't been able to deploy, you know, the big names, people like the Tucker Carlson's that you refer to. We don't, we don't have that here in, in Japan. They would have absolutely no credence whatsoever. On the other hand, there's a great deal of detailed analysis of the day by day shift of the, of the battles and Japanese journalists on the scene uh, really getting into the deep of it. It's just amazing some of the reporting that they're doing. You, you will not see this unless you cover Japanese media to see it, but it's really phenomenal. And the Japanese are getting a, a very excellent uh, introduction to what's going on over there. There were some polls released earlier about 20 nations, citizens of 20 nations, ranking them in terms, in terms of either their knowledge or their interest in the Ukrainian situation. And Japan was number one. Interesting. Do you have a question, sir? Yeah, I'm sorry. The question, I yeah, I just want to ask a question here. And I've been away from this uh, situation where it was discussed that there were the, the, the Russians may have used some captured POWs in their parades for that victory day. I don't know if it was in, you know, some, whatever years where they were going to do that. Did that ever shake out? Did they ever dare do that? Was there any uh, press or any that anyone noticed that they actually went and pulled the trigger and did something that foolish? And that was the question that I had. And that's it. Thank you, sir. Walter, do we know anything about uh, uh, Russian parading of prisoners at Victory Day? 
Well, they already did it even prior to the victory day. They specifically assembled prisoners who were captured in different in different areas in the north of Ukraine. In the east, they transported them to Mariupol and paraded these people and framed them as if it were Ukrainian Marines of the 501st Battalion, Ukrainian Marines who are currently in Mariupol. Uh, again, for propaganda purposes, framed them as so if just, it were just, Ukrainian Marines, yeah. Just a legal note on this, uh, the Geneva Convention uh, specifically prohibits the use of POWs for any type of public spectacle, uh, and the the, the uh, uh, parading of captured prisoners is the sort of prototypical example of that. It's specifically banned by the Geneva Convention. Uh, I would just say that probably this is the, the least of the transgressions and uh, horrors that Russian invaders I, I would uh, bring agree. to Ukraine. But I would agree with the... On the other hand, as somebody who edits a, a website devoted to uh, uh, national security law, including the law of armed conflict, it is my my job to point out uh, war crimes whenever I whenever I see them. Absolutely, absolutely. it's very important. It's just another instance and another another piece of evidence that eventually will be um, brought upon or discussed and used as evidence in Hague when all these who perpetrate what is happening right now and being perpetrated by Russians in Ukraine, all of these people eventually will be trialed. As, uh, as it was the case in 1945. Watchful eye, the floor is yours. Hi, hello there. Um, as a UK uh, resident, uh, I think, uh, you know, there was a mention of Jeremy Corbyn. It's just that uh, sad sort trying to remain relevant. Um, you know, the public voted here, gave uh, Boris Johnson of, you know, all people gave Boris Johnson one of the biggest uh, victories in the recent hundred years or so. Uh, and um, his own party shunned him as well. You know, he's just trying to remain relevant, like many other politicians, like the, like of, or the likes of uh, the North Korean dictator. You know, wh whenever they feel that the world has forgotten them, they come up with some nonsense to, to try and remain relevant. And just a very brief testimony to the Voucher Report, uh, I discovered this space. I, I'm not a tweet, uh, Twitter person at all. I discovered it very early uh, after the, the, the invasion started. And I've been hooked ever since. You know, I spent the last two weeks traveling overseas in possible time zones, but uh, it, it just became an addiction. And uh, I think that's testimony to the quality of speakers that we normally have on a regular basis. Like, it, it's pretty much rotating. And uh, also the the quality of the news and the debates that, uh, you know, it will take a couple of days for, for that to come out on the mainstream news. So um, thank you so much for the opportunity to speak. And uh, Walter, thank you so much for, you know, bringing these uh, to us and sharing, um, you know, everything that you say and, uh, and to everyone that contributes on a regular basis. And, um, you know, I look forward to the day that we're going to be able to celebrate uh, Ukraine's victory and uh, get together somewhere and help reconstruct uh, Ukraine. Thank you. Slava Ukraini. Thank you. Eve Guman, the floor is yours. Thanks. Um, you said that you, Walter, you said that you still have friends on the ground from medical schools, from medical school, and you also host uh, some healthcare worker uh, on the Walter Report. Uh, I wanted to know if you had some insight on the situation and how it's going uh, in hospital on the ground. So it differs 
first of all, it's uh, worth mentioning that uh, I don't recall the exact number, but I believe it's uh, hundreds at this point of medical facilities, including hospitals that were completely destroyed and bombed by Russians. These are mostly in the east and in the south of Ukraine. Um, overall, the issue is currently with medical supplies and less of the issue, of course, is with the personnel. The personnel retained, they're still doing their job, helping people, but uh, occasionally, specifically in the east, in the south, in the central Ukraine, to a lesser extent in the western, uh, people are running into issues with medical supplies. And obviously, the closer you are to the front line, the, the more pressing issues are. So this is currently what is mm, the most disturbing regarding the the medical facilities. Also, it's also worth mentioning that um, a lot of civilian hospitals, just because they were in place and the front line was encroaching upon cities and upon the hospitals themselves, they uh, carried the burden of military, military surgery and military medicine. And uh, uh, actually it helped big time with the evacuation um, efforts and just shortening the time just because the, the front line was close and the wounded soldiers could be evacuated to, to hospitals uh, in Ukrainian cities, which just became close to the front lines because, because Russians were close. And uh, yeah, supplies right now are the issue. Thanks, that's super interesting. Um, I think that's what you're doing uh, with the water report is, uh, makes it. And a huge impact. But have you ever thought, or do you sometimes wonder if you should go back and help on the ground? Or yeah, it's a it's a good thought. It's actually something that follows me every single day, and it's it's hard to assess whether it's gonna be uh, whether it's more significant contribution that I currently do, or whether it's something that I should have been doing on the ground. So it's uh, it remains a, a pressing sort of a question for me. Speaking of the ground, um, I'm going to ask you a question I probably should have asked you from the beginning. At the be uh, how do you assess the situation, the military situation today? Is the is the Western press uh, basically getting the story right, or is the situation? Uh, better or worse for the Ukrainians than than uh, the impression created would have you believe. So uh, we are from the victory, but the victory obviously is the only way. And there is no other way, but Ukrainian victory. However, it's going to take time. We already are seeing that. Even Russians were successfully pushed and uh, withdrew from the north of Ukraine, from Kiev region, Suma region, and Chernihiv region. They managed to get somewhat of a foothold in the east, and unfortunately in the south of Ukraine. And we are right now receiving more and more reports that Russians are uh, contributing a significant amount of effort to solidify their gains and create fortified, specifically fortified positions. They're using concrete to, to, to solidify these entrenchments they pour concrete in many cases they create these you know strong points and they're just getting ready to to, to they're digging in already dug in and getting ready to hold 
the territorial gains that they managed to seize and occupy. And it's already oppressing for Ukrainians because it's hard to dislodge someone who is already dug in. And on top of that, Russians have um, an upper hand in artillery, this number one pressing issue, which is the sheer amount of Russian artillery are dominating, unfortunately, the battle space. And uh, obviously, on top of that, Russians utilize the the ancient tactic of Russian human waves. Basically, they're throwing in people cannon fodder. And what's even more horrendous for this cannon fodder, they use people who were forcefully conscripted from Russian-occupied Ukrainian territories, Donetsk and Luhansk. And currently, this is uh, the case for the southern Ukraine. So they're basically exterminating Ukrainian population, utilizing them as cannon fodder. In the meanwhile, Russians operate heavy artillery tanks and air force. And uh, we're just expecting, just expecting right now, to the, the balance to be shifting somewhat in favor of Ukrainians, or at least into the neutral spots, because um, American equipment uh, or equipment from allies regarding these M777s and some rocket artillery systems is just being delivered to the front line and starts to operate near the front lines. But again, the issue is artillery and amounts of artillery, because the front line is, is, is just immense. The JFO area itself, which is about one-fifth or one-seventh of the front line is as large as Connecticut, just the JFO area. Wow, people, you know, it, it, you, don't, you don't get a sense of the scale of it from looking at a map because everything is small on a map except for Russia, but it's, it's the largest front since World War II, right? Yeah, it's the, basically the largest... <laughs> The biggest war in Europe since World War II, the front line is just is just too large. And the amount of resources contributed to that, it's being overextended. But I, and the, just in Europe, I can't think of another war since World War II that had a front that long. Anywhere. Yeah, it's, it's, it's immense. And the casualties, unfortunately, on the Ukrainian side are also... Uh, an issue and uh, we're losing the best the best of us on the front lines and it it will remain an issue it continues to be the issue while russia specifically just exterminates other ukrainians who ended up under russian occupation and you reutilizes them as as cannon essentially it's uh it's just another element of the genocide and actually we mentioned something how did how all of this started and kind of tracked back to little bits and I recall peculiar effect. Uh, I believe it was in the 20th, in the 20th, at the end of February or mid-February, we were discussing, well, there was some information transpiring about Russians or Russian invasion force uh, preparing about 45,000 of body bags. At that point, the speculation was, well, Russians are preparing these body bags for Russian soldiers who might become uh, casualties during the war. But eventually, it's kind of harsh, but we came to grips with the reality that the body bags were for us, for Ukrainians, for the elite of Ukrainian society, for NGO leaders, for politicians, for musicians. People were actually called a number of people and people that I know were alerted by 
government agencies that they have to flee Ukraine, literally not to locate to Western Ukraine, but literally flee Ukraine and leave Ukraine because it's a matter of life and death. And people were receiving these calls on the 24th of February. So essentially, Russians had the kill lists. The kill lists were on hand with Russians and they prepared to exterminate the most proactive part of Ukrainian society. And these 45,000 body bags that Russians prepared were us for Ukrainians. And uh, according to the original plan that Russians had, they, they tried to seize the biggest cities, tried to capture the capital. They had the kill lists and then they would continue uh, having the control of the major population centers. They would continue to kill, exterminate and uh, eliminate basically elites uh, or elite part of the Ukrainian society, the most proactive part of Ukrainian society. The plan was to decapitate and kill the best. We need to wrap up, but I want to ask you, what will you do when the war is over? Will the Walter report continue in some form or will you be uh, go back to uh, obstetrics or both? I believe it's going to be both in one way or another, probably mostly obstetrics. I hope, <laughs> and uh, but right now we're we're doing what we're we can do to help Ukraine, to help people on the ground who are doing way more than we are, because we are in the safety here, in the safety of our homes. But at least we can uh, extend our helping hands and try to contribute in one way by just spreading the word and uh, conveying the message, and obviously also by directly reaching out to people. It's an immensely valuable project. Uh, Walter Lech, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, and uh, thank you, Benjamin, and thank for having me. It was a pleasure. We will be back. I'm not sure exactly when or whom, but this series will continue. Uh, and until then, uh, stay safe, everyone. Live from Ukraine is a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo, uh, you know, the engineering, I'm doing it myself because it's Twitter spaces, but it is produced and edited by folks at Goat Rodeo. Thanks for listening.